Good morning. Uh, my wife Emily and I and our two sons, Nathan and Caleb, are so grateful to be here with you this morning. Uh, we're so thankful for the partnership in the gospel that Christians are able to have as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're thankful for how you all have prayed for us and supported us as we were overseas, and as we've come back, we know there's still been prayers going up on our behalf, and we are so grateful for you as a church. We're grateful for your pastor and his family and for your elders, and so thank you so much for having us here, and we're looking forward to tonight to being able to share more with you about uh, our, our desires for the future, where we believe God is leading us, and to help you be able to pray for us more specifically. 2013 was a year that I was experiencing a lot of change in my life, and it was mostly all for the good. I was excited about the changes that were coming. I had been in the Army for four years, and I was about to finish my contract, and so I was finishing that, and I was going to be transitioning to Bible College in Louisville, Kentucky. So these changes were coming. I was excited, but the most significant change that was going to come to me in 2013 had to do with a young woman named Emily Hall. I had known Emily for most of my life. Our families were close friends, and our relationship was nothing more than childhood friendship. But as I joined the Army as a medic, and she began, I was in Kentucky, and she started working as a nurse in California, we would occasionally Skype and talk about our different experiences in the medical field. And over the course of a few months, some time went by, I began to sense that my feelings toward Emily were changing, and I wanted to pursue her. I was thinking, this is the girl that I think I want to go after. And so I devised a plan. Uh, I'm going to Skype with her because we're very far apart, Kentucky and California. And I'm going to Skype with her and I'm going to share with her that I'm interested in her and I'd like to start a relationship with her. So we set up this time and we're Skyping and we're talking and I'm, I'm on the edge and I'm now, and I don't say anything. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm trying to work it into the conversation. I'm like, how do you start this in the conversation? And I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I, I was there, and I wanted to do it. I wanted to say, Emily, I, I'm interested in you, and I want to pursue a relationship with you. And it never came out of my mouth. And we talked, and we talked, and it was a great conversation. And then we said goodbye, and we hung up, and I was like, I didn't do it. I failed. And I'm grateful to tell you that the next time I did not fail, I was able to get it out and to tell her that I wanted to pursue a relationship with her. But in that, in that conversation, I, I couldn't even necessarily point to you why I couldn't get it out. I, I was afraid, maybe. I didn't know how she would respond. I, I, I lacked the confidence to just be able to say, I want to pursue a relationship with you. And so I didn't say anything. And as I look at that event in my life, I see similar correlations between that and many of my efforts to share the gospel with people. See, I, I, I make plans many times, and it, maybe it's I'm going to the park and I want to engage with strangers, 
or I have friends in my life that I, I'm having time with them, and I, I want to share the gospel. I want to bring up Christ. I want them to know the message of salvation, and I get there, and I'm trying to work it in the conversation. I'm trying to bring it up, but there's just this, this fear and this lack of confidence in what I'm doing, and oftentimes, the conversation goes, and I say nothing, and the opportunity is lost. And I think that I'm not alone in that experience. I think that's something that's common for all Christians at some point in our lives. We want to share God's word. We want to share the gospel, but we struggle with fear. And we, we fear what people are going to respond with. We fear how it's going to affect the relationship. Maybe we just fear, oh, I don't know what questions they're going to ask. I don't have all the answers. And so oftentimes our evangelism or our sharing the gospel is stifled because we lack that confidence. But what I want to share with you this morning from Matthew 28 is that Scripture can help us in this task so that in spite of all the fear and in spite of all the anxiety and the insecurity we may have, that we may feel in our hearts as we try to do this task that God has given us, you can have confidence. You can have confidence to share the gospel, to proclaim God's word. And as we look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, I want you to see three reasons why you can have this confidence. We're going to look at these three truths or three treasures that Christians possess, that we have, that can motivate us and give us confidence to share the gospel so that we don't become overwhelmed with anxiety and allow these opportunities to pass us by. And so I want to pray once more with you before we look at this passage and just ask for God's help to understand. So join me in prayer. Father, I know I need your help. I am not able to proclaim your word on my own. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would give me your words and would help me to proclaim faithfully and truthfully what you tell us in Scripture. And I pray for those listening because they cannot hear on their own. They need your Holy Spirit to open their ears and their hearts. And so we pray that your Spirit would work so that your word is exalted and that Christ is magnified and that we are edified. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So please open your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. When I was a child, I remember reading lots of books, novels, stories, and if it was one that was particularly dramatic or suspenseful, I would flip to the end of the book and see how the story ended so that it would help me as I read the rest of the book. I don't usually like doing that. I usually like to just take the story as it comes, but there were some stories that I felt like I need to know the end in order to, to, to make it through this book. And that's something that we're going to be doing today, similar to that. We're going to be going to the end of the book of Matthew, and 
Hobson told me you all are working through the book of Matthew as a church. He's preaching through that. And you're only in chapter five or six? Five. And so, like Hobson said, we're not, you're not skipping all the way to chapter 28. But what you're going to have is you're going to be able to see the end of the story. And I think that will help you as you work through it more slowly and diligently with your pastor. You're going to be able to see connections. You're going to see, okay, this is how the story ends. This is how Matthew ends. And it will inform the way you work through the rest of the book. And my hope is, again, that this, as we look at this, it would also help us to have confidence to proclaim the gospel. So we're looking at the end of Matthew, but in order to effectively do that, we just briefly, I'm going to give you a very brief synopsis of what takes place for the rest of the book. So you already know that Matthew, it's an account that's emphasizing Jesus as the messianic king. He's coming as the king to inaugurate his spiritual kingdom in the lives of his people. You've begun to see his miraculous power. You've begun to listen to his captivating teaching. And this is what takes place after these things. Jesus, he, he continues his ministry. He continues to heal. He continues to teach. And he's opposed by the religious leaders of the day. They hate him. And they hate his message. And they eventually have him killed on a cross. He's murdered. But not even the grave can contain this king because he rises from the dead. And he appears to a few women on the day that he rises from the dead. He appears to a few women. And he instructs them and tells them, to inform the disciples that he's alive and to then tell them, go to Galilee to a certain mountain and I will meet you there. On this mountain in Galilee. And he gives what is commonly called the Great Commission. Now, this Great Commission that we're going to look at, this is something that Jesus gave and he intended it for the church. He intended it for his people to carry out until he returns. So it's binding on us. This is something that we have an obligation to fulfill, to seek to obey. He wants us to be about the business of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is his marching orders. These are his marching orders for the church, how his kingdom will advance. But it's important for us, before we look at it, to remember, even though it's binding on us as his church, who did Jesus give this to first? Who were the first ones he gave it to? And when we understand that, it's going to help us see the Great Commission in the right light. So I want you to look at Matthew 28, and we're going to start in verse 16, just to see who Jesus gave this to initially. So Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So these are the individuals that Jesus gave the Great Commission to, his 11 disciples. You'll remember that it wasn't 12 because Judas was one of them and he betrayed Christ. 
And then he eventually took his own life out of despair. So there's these 11 disciples, and they come to this mountain, and we need to consider who they are. These are men who believe in Jesus. These are men who believe, like Peter declared earlier in the book of Matthew, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. So they, they have a right understanding of who Christ is, even though it's a little foggy. They, they believe in him. They believe in who he is. And they are also men who love Jesus. Again, if you think about in the book of John, after Jesus rises from the dead and he talks to Peter and he's having that confrontation with him that reminds Peter of when he betrayed Jesus, Jesus asks him, do you love me? And three times Peter is able to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Even though I fail, you know I love you. And that's something that was true for all the disciples. They believe in Christ. They love Jesus. And you can even see this in the fact that they're walking to Galilee. Galilee was three to four days, a three to four day walk from Jerusalem. And so they're walking to this faraway place to meet with the risen Christ. So they believe in Christ. They love Christ. But even when they are there, and it says they see Jesus, some are doubtful. Some doubted. The other gospel writers give you some indication of what those doubts looked like. You think of Thomas, who he famously, he's known for his doubting spirit, who said, if I do not see the marks in my Lord's hands and feet, I won't believe. And even though they're here in Matthew, Matthew doesn't say that event, but he says they come to this mountain, they see Jesus, and they're doubtful. I think he's reminding us that even though these men love Christ, even though these men believe in Christ, they're flawed. They have problems. And you think about the different things you read in the Gospels. There's many flaws. There are men who constantly argue about who is the greatest. They don't want children to come to Christ. They think that Jesus is too busy, too important for the children to come to Jesus. Some of them want to call down fire from heaven to burn up unbelievers. On the night of Jesus' crucifixion, or the eve of his crucifixion, they abandon him. Peter denies him. So they, they have these flaws. And I think that's supposed to remind us that they're a lot like us. I mean, we are people who believe in Jesus. We love Jesus, but we have our sins and doubts as well. We have our flaws, and we have our problems. And so when we read that this is who Jesus is giving the commission to, it's meant to, to help us step back and think, okay, these are men like us, and, and humanly speaking, this seems like the worst thing Jesus could do. Why is he entrusting this commission to these men who have shown how flawed they are. They've shown how weak 
they are. Give this responsibility to extend the kingdom of God to fishermen and tax collectors who can't even get their own act together? It seems foolish to think, how are these men going to stand before mobs and thousands of people and kings and governors and testify about the risen Christ? And yet, when you look at the book of Acts, you see they are doing exactly that. It's like there's this transformation. They go from being weak and incompetent to being bold witnesses of the gospel. What happened to them? What changed these men? What gave them the confidence to proclaim the gospel? And you, could, you could look at a number of factors. Prayer is one of them. Acts 1 talks about how after Christ went to heaven, they were gathered together. They were praying constantly, meeting together, seeking God's help. They were praying, and this is something that God used to give them confidence to proclaim the gospel. You can also point to the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 shows us how the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them and gave them confidence to proclaim the gospel. These are no longer mere men, mere fishermen. These are men indwelt by God. And they're proclaiming the gospel. So these things are what God used to change them, but you can also look at what happened on this mountain in Galilee. Because in Matthew 28, these men have an encounter with the living Christ. And when you have an encounter with the living Christ, it changes you. And so, this is helpful for us as Christians because we need to have this encounter with Christ. We have had this encounter with Christ, and the Holy Spirit made sure that this encounter specifically on this mountain was recorded so that we also could have confidence to proclaim God's word to the people we know in our lives. And if you're thinking this morning, well, that just can't happen to me. It's great the disciples were changed and maybe pastors can be changed and maybe others can be changed who are more mature in their faith to proclaim God's word, but I'm just too fearful. You don't understand how afraid I become about the thought of telling someone, telling a, a family member or telling a stranger or my neighbor about Jesus. You don't understand how fearful I am of that. This is for you. You need to hear this message today because you can have that confidence and you can have that transformation. Jesus is not limited by your weakness or your flaws or your fears. He's not limited by my doubts and my insecurities. He is able to change people to give them confidence and he does it by taking our eyes off of ourselves and placing them on Christ. And so that's the first reason you can have confidence. That's what we're going to look at. The first reason you can have confidence to proclaim the gospel is because you have a great king. So look at verse 18. Jesus came up 
and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus' first words to his disciples is not a rebuke to the ones who doubt. He doesn't say, why are you doubting? It's not a rebuke. But it's also not praising them for worshiping him, because some were worshiping. So he's not praising them for worshiping him. He's not rebuking them for doubting. In fact, he's not even talking about them initially. He's talking about himself. He's pointing them to him and his unfathomable authority. So authority, this word authority, it's the same word. If you were reading through the book of Matthew, you see it come up over and over again and the rest of the gospels as well. There's a centurion who comes to Christ. He wants Christ to heal his servant and he says, I am a man under authority. I tell this, this soldier, do this, and he does it. I tell him, go, he goes, come, he comes. I have authority to do this. Pilate, when he was speaking to Jesus at Jesus' trial, he says, don't you realize I have the authority to have you crucified or released? So that's the idea of authority. It's this understanding. Jesus, he's saying, I can do what I want, and I can command who I will. I have this authority. And he, he qualifies it by saying, all authority. I have unlimited authority. So these disciples, they're not following an obscure carpenter anymore. They are following the king with authority. Jesus, he's not finished though. He continues to describe this authority and he says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So he's explaining his jurisdiction, and he says that it is an infinite jurisdiction. You know, there are many people who possess great authority in our world. There are many who would say what we, they would possess what we would sometimes consider to be unlimited authority. You can think of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. He has great authority over his people. He has great authority in North Korea. But no one in this room fears his authority because no one in this room is under his authority or in his jurisdiction. And so if Jesus' authority, even if it were unlimited, if, it were, if he were limited in its jurisdiction, if he had all authority in one area but not in a jurisdiction that we were in, it wouldn't matter. And so Jesus explains I have all authority, and it is not limited as far as place, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's all-encompassing. He has authority over the entire universe. And that's what he says when he begins to give his great commission, because he wants us to see this task. It's not about us or how strong we are. We're not even supposed to be looking at ourselves. We're supposed to be looking to the one who has ultimate authority. And do you know, do you know what this means? Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. What this means is that when you go share the gospel with your neighbor, 
Or you try and make that phone call to that unbelieving parent or child. Or you meet a refugee and you seek to proclaim the gospel to them. You're not going in your own strength. You're not going in your own power. You're not going on your own authority. You are going under the banner of the king of kings. If, if we would remember this one truth, it would transform our evangelism. We are not going in our own strength. We are going in the strength of God. And this is, this is revolutionary, but that's not all it means. There's more that this means. It also means that nothing can harm you apart from the will of your king. No one can reject you. No one can oppose you. No one can even physically harm you apart from the will of Christ because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, even over those who don't want to hear your message. John Patton, he was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands. These are islands in the South Pacific. He was there in the 1800s, and they were notorious for their opposition of foreigners, especially missionaries. And he goes to an island called Tana, and for four years, he's laboring there, learning the language, proclaiming the gospel, seeking to bring these locals to Christ. And some days... He was confronted with his mortality because warriors would surround him with guns and they would all point their guns at him. And miraculously, they wouldn't shoot. Other times, there would be warriors who would charge him with a knife and a machete and sometimes he was able to defend himself. Sometimes others would defend him. But this was a constant reality he dealt with, people trying to kill him. But listen to what he says about this. Listen to what he describes his attitude was. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made. And yet my trembling hand clasped the hand once nailed in Calvary now swaying the scepter of the universe. I was fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and he would protect me till my allotted task was finished. I left all in his hands and I felt immortal till my work was done. You are immortal until your work is done. Nothing can harm you apart from the authority of Christ. And that doesn't mean that suffering won't come. It doesn't mean there won't be harm. In Acts 12, two apostles are imprisoned, James and Peter. James is killed. And God miraculously delivers Peter. Two apostles, both imprisoned, and yet two different results, and yet they both came from the authoritative Christ over the universe. Now you might hear that, you might think, well, that doesn't comfort me now. I mean, it you know, was nice before, but now I don't feel the comfort because that means it might still be bad. 
Yes, it might. But if it comes, it is from the hand of God. And he is working all things for our good. And so Jesus' authority, it means you can go in the strength of your king. It means that nothing can touch you apart from his will. And it also means this. The Great Commission will be fulfilled. It is going to be accomplished. All of Christ's people are going to be saved. The Lamb will receive the reward for his sufferings. All through Scripture you see this. Jesus emphasizes this in many places. John 10, 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. Or John 17, 2, Jesus is praying, and he says, you gave him authority over all flesh. So very similar to Matthew 28, he received all authority. You gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And even the Old Testament points to this reality. In Daniel 7, the prophet, he sees this vision, this amazing vision, and in the middle of it, this is what he sees. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. All that authority was given to Christ. And because that is true, his mission will not fail. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God's people all his people will be brought in. Do you believe that your king has ultimate authority? If you do, you can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because the mission can't fail. Nothing can touch you apart from his will and you are going forth in his name. So you can have confidence because you have a great king. The next reason you can have confidence, proclaim the gospel, is because you have a great commission. So go ahead and look at verse 19 of Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So after establishing this authority, Jesus gives a mission. These are the, again, these are the marching orders that he gave to the apostles, and these marching orders continue on for the church until Christ returns. And so we need to ask, well, what is it that Jesus is actually telling us to do? The primary command in this passage the thing that he tells us to do is to make disciples. He wants us to go and make disciples. And just like 
his kingly authority spreads over all the earth, that is where we are to go with this message, and that is where we are to go and make disciples. Jesus has all authority on earth, so we go to all the nations to make disciples. But what is a disciple? What is this disciple that Jesus is calling us to make? And the word, it means student. It means someone who becomes like their teacher, and that's helpful, but we still need to fine-tune that definition a little bit. What is a disciple? And Jesus helps us know what he means. He continues to explain this, and he says two things specifically. Baptizing them, so they're baptized, and we teach them to obey all that Christ commands, so they obey Christ. That's what Jesus is looking for in true disciples. And I want you to see how radical and glorious those things are. Because we can easily just lose sight of how great these things are. So to be baptized in someone's name, it means you are making a public confession of identification. You are identifying with the one you're being baptized into their name. It's not meant to be secretive. It's not meant to be between one person and God. This is public identification. And Jesus says that they must be baptized in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which means they're rejecting all other gods. They have to reject all other gods. You cannot follow Christ and other deities. We do not worship the same God as Jehovah's Witnesses. We do not worship the same God as Mormons or Muslims. We worship one God who exists as three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And Christ demands that we identify with this God. But in order to do that, those who go and proclaim the gospel, you and me, Christians, we have to explain that. We have to make sure they understand the fullness of who this God is. There is a tendency in evangelism and in the missions world as well to present a minimal gospel, to present a bare minimum of what the Bible teaches about God and to make the gospel simple. Now, the gospel can be understood. It is a simple, beautiful message that even children can understand. But there are riches in the gospel, and there are deep truths that also must be comprehended. When my wife and I were overseas, we would have conversations with people about who Jesus is. We would tell them that he is the Son of God, and we would explain that. We would explain that he's equal to God. We would explain that it's not Mary 
who is God, which many Muslims think that's what we believe. We would explain these things to them because we wanted them to have a full understanding. And that's hard for Muslims to hear. They don't want to hear that. It's offensive to say that Jesus is God. But if they don't believe that, they will not be saved. They have to hear the realities of who Christ is. If you take away these confusing parts, these offensive parts, you have no gospel. And Jesus is not afraid of them, of these offensive parts, these hard parts. And he says, you can't be a disciple unless you identify with the true God and these hard parts of the gospel. You have to be identifying with God. Now again, this doesn't mean baptism saves you. We come to Christ and we obey him in baptism. But that is how we become true disciples in the sense of we are growing in, in our relationship with him. And if we reject baptism, we are rejecting obedience to the king with authority. So we have to know who he is and identify with him. And then, friends, you have seen this. You have seen people be baptized. Do you know what that represents? This is representing this person being transferred and ripped out of the kingdom of Satan and placed into the kingdom of Christ. It represents their rescue. The God reached down and brought them into his kingdom. And so that's what it means. That's part of what he calls us to do, baptize people. That's part of what discipleship is. But he also says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So if Jesus is the king and we are his subjects, we are expected to obey him. And again, this doesn't mean that we will be perfect. We will be sinless in this life. But it does mean that we submit to his rule. It means that we seek to obey him, and when we fail, we repent. It means that we're trying to live as kingdom citizens, that our lives are characterized by obedience. And this is something we have to teach those who come to faith. We can't just say, you've become a Christian, you've prayed a prayer, and now you're good to go. We must teach them all that Christ has commanded so that they obey this great God that they submit to the risen Lord. So, so to summarize what this great commission is, we go, Christians go, and we proclaim the gospel. And as we proclaim the gospel and people believe, we then have the joy and privilege of calling them to identify with this God by being baptized so they publicly are renouncing Satan and they are following Christ and they are seeking to obey him for the rest of their lives. That's the Great Commission. That's what he's called us to do. And this is great. Many times I've heard Christians say, I wish I could have been there when God created the world. 
Can you imagine how amazing that would have been to just see things bursting into existence? Or many times people say, I wish I could have been there when Jesus was on the earth and seen him heal the blind people and, and, and raise the dead and give health to the lame. I've been just so amazing, strengthening to my faith if I could have seen that. I've heard Christians say that. Friends, when you share the gospel, you are witnessing the greatest that has ever taken place when people come to faith. You get to see the new creation of a sinner's heart. You get to see God heal the spiritually blind and they can see Christ. You see the dead raised to life. And it's not just that you get to see that. You get to be a part of that. You participate in that by proclaiming this to people. You are a fellow worker with God and no other creature has that honor. Animals do not proclaim the gospel. God does not write the gospel in the sky with the stars. Not even angels are sent out to proclaim the gospel, baptize, and teach people to obey. Only Christians, only believers have this gift and this great commission. This is amazing. And this is what should give us confidence. This should give us desire and motivation to share the gospel. In the late 1700s, there was a group of Baptist pastors, and they sent a letter to their congregations. They sent a letter to their peoples trying to stir them up to this work. And this is what they said. He who wins souls is wise. Do you not long for this honor of being wise? to win precious souls to Christ. Next to the salvation of our own souls, what can be imagined more dear, more excellent, more desirable than to be the instruments of the salvation of our fellow sinners? Friends, we have a great commission and it can give us the confidence we need when we think what we are doing, we are joining God in this work of bringing sinners into the kingdom that can give us confidence to proclaim the message. So you can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because you have a great king. You can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because you have a great commission. And you can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because you have a great promise. Look at the end of verse 20 in Matthew 28. And behold, I am with you always to the end of of the age. My family and I live in Vermont, and winters there are different than anywhere else we've lived. There's a lot of snow, there's a lot of coldness, uh, but there's many things that we enjoy. We enjoy the snow, we enjoy the fires, we enjoy staying inside under blankets, staying warm. There's a few things that we don't enjoy, and one of those is how early it gets dark. Sometimes it feels like it's, it's, we haven't even sat down to dinner and we're just, it's, it's pitch black outside. You feel like it's 9 p.m. 
It's so dark. And on those evenings, there's sometimes that I send our son Nathan. I say, okay, go get your jammies on. I'll go, go brush your teeth. I send him to go do these tasks. And it's dark in those places. And so you know what his, one of his most common requests is? Will you come with me? Will you come with me? When he's faced with this scary situation, when he's faced with this scary thing he has to do, he wants my presence. It gives him comfort and confidence, and that is exactly what we need as Christians going to do this task. Because we do. We have a great king, and we have a great commission, but friends, it is hard. It is difficult it is scary, and it can even be dangerous. Jesus is sending us into the world with a despised message, a message that people will hate. He knows this. He knows that we might lose relationships with people that we love. He knows that we might lose our jobs. He knows that we may have to be all alone in our school or our workplace because no one else wants to identify with the Bible freak. If God leads you overseas, you might get kicked out of a country for proclaiming the gospel. You will have very hard seasons. It can result in imprisonment, and there have been many who have also been killed. So it's, it's not that this is easy. But in the midst of that difficulty, Jesus makes us a promise. Whatever hardship we encounter, whether it's here in America or overseas, he gives us a promise. You are never alone. He is always with you. So Matthew, as he gives this, he, Matthew's writing this down, what Jesus said. He's ending the book the same place he started it. Matthew 1, when he's talking about Jesus' birth. You remember, he says, this was to fulfill what the prophet said. His name, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Matthew, he's ending this book, the same place he started it, and he says, as Jesus sends you out, he tells you he is with you. There's a song, it's one of my favorite hymns, How Firm a Foundation, and the last verse says, that soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake. I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. He is with us. John Patton, he's the missionary I mentioned earlier. His story on the island, it's, it's so captivating because of what he went through. At the end of his four years, he is literally running for his life. The whole island, it seems, had turned against him, and they either wanted him dead or gone. 
And so he's trying to escape the island, but he can't get off the island. He has no way to get off the island, so he's just running for his life. And there's a few of the islanders that come and say they'll help him, but he has no idea if he can trust them. But he has no other alternative. And so he trusts them. He follows them. They say, go hide in this tree tonight so that no one else finds you and will come get you in the morning. And so he climbs up into this tree. Darkness settles, and he can hear dozens of warriors running through this forest with weapons, and they're shooting their guns just into the forest, trying to hit him. And he's sitting in this tree. And this is what he says about that night. I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow and I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. And then he asked this. this he wrote this in a book and he asks his readers, if you find yourself in a situation like this, do you have a friend who will not fail you then? If you're a Christian, you have that friend. You have the same friend, the risen Christ, with all authority in heaven and on earth, who sends us out to proclaim the gospel. He promises, I will be that friend and I will be with you. You are not alone. So that when you share the gospel, when you go to your family members, your neighbors, even strangers, to tell them about Christ, you are not alone. And when you suffer ridicule or scorn or rejection, you're not alone. Jesus is always with you to the end of the age. Friend, you have that friend that won't fail you. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, which there may be some in this room who do not know Christ, you can have that friend. Christ died for your sins and rose again on your behalf if you will place your faith in him, if you will trust him and ask him to save your soul. He will never leave you. You need this king. Do not reject him. Friends, we have a great king and a great commission and a great promise. So let these truths give you confidence to proclaim the gospel. Let's pray. Father, You have given us such treasures in your son Christ. We know that we on our own are completely incompetent and inadequate to do what you call us to. But by your spirit, by your son, you have given us everything we need so that we can proclaim the gospel and see you extend the kingdom of your son. And we desire 
to be used by you in that 